to episode 11 of Inside Your Head, the podcast and blog that explores psychology, mental health, neuroscience, self-help and related subjects. I'm your host Henry Hyde and here's a short clip from today's main interview. And then you that you gradually start dismantling what you know because of the feedback you get and all the things you didn't know you yeah. had to know. And that can be really dispiriting. And you think, oh, I used to enjoy this, but now I don't know what I'm doing at all. I have no pleasure in it. I don't seem to, uh, the things I knew how to do, they, they are uh, childish and I was totally unsophisticated. I'm not satisfying myself or mm. anyone. And then gradually you rebuild. That's the third stage. You kind of come out mm. of it. And in that journey, what you've learned is more where you truly fit and where you find the biggest rewards because you do it by just inevitably returning to things that intrigue you, your deepest self, mm. um, that move you, that you want to explore. So you kind of build yourself as a creative yeah. person through this process and I think resilience comes from that actually because you develop a sense of who you are and who you're not. That was the voice of Ros Morris. Ros is a wonderful woman. She's multi-talented. She's a writer. Uh, she's been a ghost writer as well for some famous people that we're not allowed to mention. She's a writing coach and she's an editor as well. She both edits magazines and is what's called a developmental editor, helping writers to make the most of their stories. And on top of that, she rides horses. She rides them really well. And she's got quite a lot to say about that kind of experience and the wonderful benefits that it can confer. So that's Ros Morris, who you'll be listening to me talking to in the main part of the show coming up shortly. Now, as I record this, uh, it's actually the 17th of December, Friday the 17th of December 2021. It's Christmas in a week's time, my goodness me, and I thought I'd say a few words about this time of year, because uh, um, here in the UK at least, and I think this is probably similar for almost all of you listening, uh, the Covid virus uh, extraordinarily is still around uh, with a vengeance with the new Omicron variety wreaking havoc certainly here in the UK and uh, the government's been making vast efforts to get people to have booster jabs which seem to be one of the few things that can actually stop this thing in its tracks and the country is in a state of high alert everyone's still feeling anxious about what's going on and particularly um, those of us who have friends or family members who may be older or more vulnerable we're taking special precautions uh, for example I'm going to go and see a friend this afternoon who's got elderly parents and we're it seems so weird but you know we are going to mutually do uh, lateral flow tests to reassure one another that you know we've taken every possible precaution not to inadvertently pass anything on um, uh, these are very very strange times and so I before I talk about uh, some other stuff I just wanted to kind of talk a bit about uh, compassion and self-compassion at a difficult time like this um, compassion towards others 
even without the coronavirus still in circulation. This is the time of year where if you are vulnerable, if you are alone, if you are on a tight budget, it's a time of year that um, can cause a great deal of anxiety, even at the best of times. I've been there. Oh, goodness me, I can remember some Christmases in the past uh, where I hardly had a bean to my name. I think of, uh, a, oh goodness me, many years ago, I worked briefly as a travel agent and there was a particular Christmas which I ended up spending on my own in a cold flat because the heating had broken down. And, uh, wow, that was pretty miserable. And the fact is, there are an awful lot of people who uh, are on their own living in circumstances that are far from ideal. And of course, um, sadly, certainly in this part of the country, we have evidence of a lot of homeless individuals, people who, you know, may have been living good lives and are good people and through no fault of their own have found their circumstances have changed dramatically and they find themselves homeless, uh, unable to afford to live in a home uh, or in a building. They can't rent anywhere, they can't afford a mortgage and so they're thrown back on charity or the, the tender mercies of the state as it were for any kind of help or accommodation. Um, the, in the particular town I live in, down in Brighton and Hove here, uh, it's a sadly quite a prevalent problem. Um, and I'm sure that there are other cities, major cities around the UK and around the world where these kind of people really could do with our compassion and where possible practical help. I mean, obviously with COVID, um, if you want to extend your compassion in a practical way and actually go and help where you can distributing food or clothes or whatever that's a wonderful thing to do which is hugely appreciated by the people who benefit from that uh, but obviously do check with your local authority your local charity about what the current uh, if you like regulations are about being able to actually help in that way um, warm clothing that's something else you can do food, uh, clothing banks that kind of thing or food banks these are all things uh, ways in which we can help in a very practical way um, and doesn't require you know you haven't got to write huge checks uh, a couple of tins of food an old you know a jumper that you it may be a beautiful jumper but you just don't wear it and I know I've got a couple of those that I'll be giving to charity you know just have a think about how you might be able to show compassion to people in straightened circumstances. And sometimes when we're talking about elderly people, for example, just talking to them, you know, people who live on their own a lot, just sitting down and have a conversation can literally change someone's life for the better. Just a smile, a cup of tea or coffee, a conversation with someone for, you know, a few minutes, half an hour can really change that person's life for the better and break them out of that sense of isolation that can all too often happen. Uh, doing a bit of shopping for someone, um, giving someone a lift if you own a vehicle, 
All these things can really, really make a huge difference to someone's life. So uh, at this time of year, yes, I'm just flagging up if you're able to show some compassion to someone else. That's fantastic. And the other great thing about showing compassion to someone else is it's good for your own soul. You know, if you're someone who, like me, uh, can can get a bit um, uh, stuck in my own thoughts, going in circular thoughts, um, uh, rumination, that kind of stuff, actually turning your attention to someone else and how you can help them can be brilliant for your own mental health. So you're showing compassion to the other person, but also it's a form of self-compassion for yourself. All right. But also bear in mind that old adage of put on your own oxygen mask first. And sometimes what you might need to do at this time of year is to show self-compassion because it can be very you know, frustrating. I mean, I'm self-employed. I've been self-employed for a long time. And one of the things that happens at this time of year is my clients disappear. <laughs> right. People take holidays, understandably. So there I'm busy, busy, busy. And then suddenly for like probably a couple of weeks, December through to the beginning of New Year, no work, which when you're self-employed means no income. And if you've had a good year, well, that's great. You might have been able to build up a bit of a reserve to tide you over at this time of year. But, you know, hey. Life has its challenges, and uh, I've, as you know, regular listeners will know, I've had a couple of challenges in the last couple of years, which has made the road a bit rockier than I would have liked it to be. So um, one of the interesting things about that is when you've you've got mental health problems, uh, you'd think, gosh, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to get angry and blame the world. I'm going to blame the clients. I'm going to blame anyone else. But no, we tend to blame ourselves. We tend to start hearing that devil on our shoulder again, telling us that we've been rubbish, that we should have done more to prevent this situation. We should have done more. We should have seen it coming. You know, somehow we should have had a crystal ball to know that, gosh, yes, there will be COVID again this Christmas. And yes, it will be rubbish, both socially and financially. Uh, You know, the fact of the matter is none of us actually has a crystal ball, do we? No. So self-compassion is actually a good place to start. And at this time of year, staying calm, uh, reducing anxiety, mindfulness, doing some meditation. Hey, listen to relaxation on the beach. All those kind of things are good as are, you know, making an effort to where we can be social. And of course, there's, you know, even if we can't meet in person nowadays... There's Skype, there's Zoom, there's, you know, insert favourite app of choice here, methods of getting in touch with the people that we care about and sharing our experiences and feeling less alone. And so again, as a form of compassion, if there's someone you know who, you know, they might live a long way away, but you know that they're potentially going to have a tough time, Get in touch. Simple text message or a little email or a phone call or, you know, a Zoom call or a FaceTime or something of that kind. Again, can make such a huge difference. And it costs 
nothing nowadays, doesn't it? You know, goodness me, you should, I think back to the days of international telephone calls. Uh, wow. Man, they were expensive. Now, you just do a FaceTime. costs you nothing. Just your time, just your energy, just your intention to be good to someone else. And as I say, that's a really good way of getting yourself outside yourself as well. Taking the focus away from, oh, poor me, my problems. And focusing on someone else. And focusing on the common experience. Because this is what we're going through now. It's a common experience, isn't it? Millions upon millions of people around the world are all being affected in the same way. You know, just within the UK, what's our population now? 60 million people. We're all facing the same thing, whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, whatever. You know, people make their own choices. I'm not going to get into that. But, you know, I'm both my friend and I are going to meet up later today. We're both triple vaccinated, right? We've both had the double vaccination and the booster. And yet we're still going to do that lateral flow test. Just... It's a sign of caring that we love one another, you know, and that it matters to us. The well-being of the other person matters to us. So it's not a chore. Now, with Christmas coming uh, uh, and over the last few weeks, I've, I've had an up down few weeks, obviously having to make the decision about the podcast and taking it to monthly rather than fortnightly. Eh, it wasn't an easy decision. You know, it was kind of. It was sort of forced upon me because of the way things have turned out. But so I've had a bit of a low point and I've come back out again. I'm all right. I'm OK to use the terminology. And I'm just going to talk very quickly about a few books I've read. Yes, I, I kind of devour books these days, whether they're physical books, audio books or e-books. Um, and you remember me talking about the original book by Thomas Harris called I'm OK, You're OK, that kind of introduction to transactional analysis. Brilliant book. Well, I finished reading the follow up book called Staying OK by Amy, his wife, and Thomas Harris. Uh, this book was actually published, uh, first published in I think 1995, whereas the original one was published back in the 60s. So it's like a 30 year gap. Uh, this, the later book, brilliant highly recommended uh goes into a lot more stuff that i think the average person will find useful <clears throat> about being able to apply transactional analysis in their own lives um we you will recall the transactional analysis basically talks about the fact that each of us has our own parent our own adult and our own child within us and I'm going to kind of add that there's an extra kind of child as well, what I'm going to call the natural child, because there's the child that's not OK, the child that is like scared of everything, incapable of doing anything and highly vulnerable in a bad way. And things tend to get a bit harem scarum when the inner not OK child appears and the trick is to try and bring your own adult to bear to soothe, calm down and you know take the sting out of things i you know i've been having some conversations on this show with highly creative people and i've had another one in this show with ros morris um and um you know i'm i'm increasingly convinced this is another child as well which i might call the natural child 
uh, which is the creative child, the child we must release in order to have that childlike, not childish, but childlike view of the world, that kind of innocent uh, observation of the world and what goes on in it which is what feeds our creativity enables us to see things differently enables us to see things almost for the first time through the eyes of a child um, but anyway that's kind of getting off the topic but this uh, the staying okay book is uh, revelatory because of course it, it what it does is it points out to us yes okay you've got your own parent adult and child and in conversation with someone else you need to be aware of the fact that they have their own parent adult and child and so who's addressing who at the moment is it parent parent is it parent child is it adult adult is it child child right this structure was also true of our parents and their parents so when you're talking to your parent or thinking about something that your parents said to you earlier in your life, was it their parent or their adult or their child who was actually addressing you when this thing went deep into your psyche? Oh, yes, it's fascinating stuff. can get really complex. And one of the things you learn in this book is what's called tracking, which is basically a yeah, pinning down. When that conversation happened that I found so damaging, was it my parents' parent talking to me? Because their, their parent is effectively the voice of your grandparent. Wow, yes. Think about that, right? Or was it your parents' child because your, your mother or father was actually upset themselves at the time they said that thing to you? So it was their child which provoked a bad reaction from your child. Oh, yes, it's fascinating stuff. That book, Staying Okay, Amy and Thomas Harris, thoroughly recommended. Go read it. Uh, very readable. Uh, more readable, I think, than the original, because it's actually been penned by Amy, here, Thomas Harris's wife, uh, and she's done a really good job. Uh, another book that I've thundered through, you might say more lightweight, but it contains quite a lot of interesting ideas. It's a shorter book, that's for sure, called How to Master Your Monkey Mind by Don McPherson. Now, Don McPherson is a chap who has mentored high-level, particularly sports people, you know, internationally acclaimed Formula One drivers or tennis players or soccer stars or whatever. And he's basically helped them to overcome their own mental blocks, their own imposter syndrome, their own fears, their own uh, over-attention to detail, you know, because a lot of sports stars can be absolutely obsessive about really, really tiny things, and sometimes it can get in their way. You know, someone like a, a, a brilliant golfer like Tiger Woods or whatever could be you know hitting holes in one for months and months and months and then suddenly he can't hit a ball straight down the fairway what's happened it's all in the mind and uh, Don McPherson is the kind of guy they can turn to to sort the head out basically and so the book's full of you know useful interesting 
tips about how to master your, your own monkey mind. And the monkey mind is what you might also refer to as the chatter that's incessant in our own heads, the, the demon on our shoulder that's telling us that we're rubbish at this and why did we even bother to get up this morning, you know. Um, that's the monkey mind. And so the techniques he points out are how can you give yourself the best chance of you being in charge of the monkey mind rather than the other way around. And he goes into all sorts of stuff. I mean, some you'll recognise, like mindfulness and meditation. And in fact, the book comes with a link to an MP3 that he's recorded that you can download for free of him uh, in a slightly godlike voice, I have to say. He's, he's used the reverb quite freely. Um <clears throat> taking you on a kind of guided meditation visualization comes in visualization is something that i recognize from uh stuff done by paul mckenna those of you might remember the work done by paul mckenna uh some years ago uh visualization could be a very very powerful tool but he also goes into things like sleep which is uh, relevant because of the next book I'm going to talk to you about in a minute, quality of sleep and how that can affect us, and so on and so forth. Uh, there's a lot in there, actually. And as I say, it's, it's written in a very approachable way. You know, it's, he, it's not full of academic references to other books. And, you know, it doesn't have a, an enormous index. Um, but he's, you know, he seems to have done the work, as it were, so that you don't have to. It's one of those kind of books. He's, so a lot of the stuff is uh, expressed in quite a simple way, but don't underestimate the power of it. Uh, and it seems, you know, he's, he's, he's done the homework and there's a lot of very useful stuff in the book. I recommend it. Give it a go. Uh, I, I listen to the... Um, no, I, uh, yes, I did. I listened to the audiobook version of that. It's available in all the usual format. Uh, it's really good. So that's How to Master Your Monkey Mind by Don McPherson. Now, the sleep subject, Dr. Michael Mosley. Love Dr. Michael Mosley, the author of the 5-2 diet and the Fast 800 diet. And I can attest to the effectiveness of those books because that's along with my own exercise regime, what helped me to lose the best part of four stone, you know, what's that, 37 kilos or whatever it is, uh, earlier this year. Uh, and what I love about Michael Mosley is he is he, he makes himself his own guinea pig. He doesn't write about anything that he hasn't tested on himself first. And it turns out he's been a bit of an insomniac for a long time. And so he was looking for ways to improve the quality and quantity of his own sleep and the research that he's done, he's effectively put into this book called Faster Sleep by Dr. Michael Mosley. And uh, it's great. Again, not a large tome. Uh, I think I read it in the space of a day for sure. Uh, but backed up by real practical research. It goes into, you know, explains how sleep works, why certain Bits of sleep are more important than others. Uh, you know, that talks about length of sleep, quality of sleep. He talks about, you know, uh, larks and owls and discovering which one you are. And even, of course, because, you know, the books he's written about food, not surprisingly, he's looked at the effect that eating certain foods or drinking certain things, uh, you know, the effect that they can have on the quality of your sleep. There's some fascinating stuff in there. You know, I'm not going to give away too much because I thoroughly recommend that you actually go and read the book. But all I can say is um, 
I read it a few days ago and already, mm, yeah, I'm seeing some improvements. Uh, just a couple of little things. I haven't done anything drastic yet, but just, uh, you know. Um, great little book, Fast Asleep by Dr. Michael Mosley. Uh, now, the next book is another fun book. Again, I listen to it on audiobook called Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day by Jake Kemp and John Zeratsky. Uh, sorry, Jake Knapp, K-N-A-P-P, and John Zeratsky. Uh, this is a book that uh, effectively is... Um, it goes into that category of how you know how to organize yourself better how to organize your time better so that you get more out of your days so that you can meet more of your goals and that kind of stuff the interesting thing is that they don't talk about setting well they talk about it but they they don't uh encourage you to set goals as such what they do is they encourage you to decide what you want the highlight of your day to be each day and uh, then you so you once you decide what the highlight of your day is and it may be a work related thing like I want to finish that report or it might be a social thing like I want to meet my friend for lunch I want to make sure I've got the time to meet my friend for lunch or to go out to the movies in the evening or to have time to spend with my kids or to make sure that I've you know put done something towards the holiday I'm planning with my partner right uh so you decide what the highlight of your day is going to be. And so you organize your day with that in mind. So what's going to help me or hinder me, prevent me from having my highlight today? And obviously, if you manage to hit your highlight every day, you start feeling pretty good. It's great for your mental health. Whereas if you just feel your day is disorganized and cluttered and you're not achieving anything, well, that's really bad for your mental health. And I know this because I've been through phases including earlier this year where for all sorts of reasons my timekeeping was just chaotic and really not good so um and they go into all kinds of really obvious and simple things like t turn off your phone right so don't get bugged by endless notifications all day every day that interrupt you prevent you getting into flow prevent you from achieving what you want to achieve and in fact my my best friend, she's ruthless. Like, uh, sits down to work, phone switched off, right? And once you get to know her, you realise, oh, okay, I won't bother even you know texting her or calling her what between these hours, because she's not even going to know that that's happened. You know, she might notice at lunchtime when she takes a break, whatever. Uh, fantastic, and I admire her enormously for it. And I'm only just about now starting to have the self-discipline to do something similar uh, because as a result of reading this book i actually deleted i don't know 20 or 30 apps off my phone the fact that i still have quite a lot of apps on there tells you that i've yeah i'm one of those guys who's just had hundreds and hundreds of apps on my phone many of which many of which i don't use many of which i've never used so it's like, why have I got that? And yet these apps can still, as I'm sure many of you know, they can still send you notifications for something. Like there's a particular florist I think I used once. They have an app. So I downloaded their app and they, they send notifications. Oh, don't forget it's going to be so-and-so's birthday in six months' time. And it's like a little bing and a little red blob appears. And it's like, I don't need to know that, <laughs> right? Go away. And the simplest thing to do is delete the app, right? Just what's it doing on your phone? And so you, you know, I'm going through this process of honing 
which apps do I actually use? Uh, which apps uh, do I think that it's permissible that I would allow them to interrupt my day in any way, even if it's just a little red badge, right? Um, and certainly, you know, get rid of those apps that can send you text messages and bing and bong and flash up banners and all the rest of it. Don't need it, right? And when you think hard about it, you know, do I even actually need the Safari browser on my phone? Seems weird to delete it, but why do I need that browser? I've got that browser on my desktop, which I use when I'm working, but pff, no. News apps, uh, all kinds of, inter you know, games. What are they doing on there? Go away. Anyway, so there's a lot of really good advice in there. But the thing that's, you know, I've got to tell you, which made me laugh, is uh, this book comes with an app. <laughs> I just love the sweet irony of that, that the book that's encouraging you to get rid of apps comes with an app. You can download the app. I've actually installed it on my phone. The idea of the app is, is to help you organise your day. But it's like, OK, so this is an app that's telling you which other apps to get rid of. It tickles my sense of humour. You you may think, what's he on? Anyway, but the, so that's that's a, I'm going to recommend that book. Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day by Jake Knapp, K-N-A-P-P, and John Zeratsky, Z-E-R-A-T-S-K-Y. All right. Uh, fun book. And the audio version is fun. They narrate it together. It's got a nice sort of bing bong. Finally, a book that they recommend in that book is called Irresistible, Why You Are Addicted to Technology and How to Set Yourself Free by Adam Alter. And it kind of backs up what those guys were saying about, whoa, do you know, these apps are designed to be addictive. And what Irresistible does I've, I've not finished it yet i've only got like 20 or 30 pages into it is immediately pointing out yeah they are literally designed to be addictive apps uh tv series you know why can't i watch a single episode of a box set right uh at the moment i'm watching the big bang theory don't know if any of you know it was first came out and started in 2018 they've made 12 series of it really short 20 minute episodes really funny great show it's my partner and i are discovering it's impossible to just watch one the way they're constructed is so brilliantly makes you want to watch the next one you almost can't help yourself and of course the other thing that netflix and amazon do is automatically Oh, yes. So you've watched that episode. We're going to automatically start the next episode in 10, 9, 8, 7. So it's like a, you, you know, I hate to say it, a bit like a conspiracy theory, isn't it? So you find yourself not watching one episode, but oh, yeah, we watched three episodes or five episodes or whatever it is. Right. It's very, very difficult to just watch a single episode of something that's been collected together as a box set, unless you're watching an original series that's just downloading week by week, like um, Wheel of Time on Amazon at the moment. You know, the, the first two or three episodes came in a lump, and now you're having to wait week by week by week. But most of us will sit down and gorge, won't we, on an entire box set over a weekend or something. Uh, and Irresistible explains the psychology behind why that is you know the the people who are designing these apps and tv programs and so they are, first of all 
is you as an individual against a team of potentially hundreds of people in that organization designing that thing to make it addictive right you don't stand a chance it's like king canute on the beach you're just gonna get drowned by this tidal wave of stuff that you don't even understand how and why it's happening to you why why am i why can't i put this thing down why can't i put my iphone down why do i keep checking every five minutes you know this book irresistible why you're addicted to technology and how to set yourself free by adam alter explains all of that and may indeed help to set you free anyway that's all for today um merry christmas everyone uh i wish you a happy peaceful and prosperous and above all healthy 2022 and I thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support over the last few months as I've been getting this podcast off the ground. It means a huge amount to me and I really appreciate it. Anyway, now hang around because it's the main interview with Ros Morris coming up in just a second. If you're enjoying the show, please consider subscribing via your normal podcast player such as Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon or Spotify. You can also support the show directly via our coffee page at ko-fi.com slash inside your head, all one word. That's coffee.com slash inside your head where you can make donations in multiples of just £3, the equivalent of a cup of coffee. All donations are gratefully received and go directly to the production costs of the show. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the interview section of episode 11 of Inside Your Head. And I've got a guest on today, another guest who I've known actually for quite a few years. It might be becoming more years than we care to remember, but there we are. Uh, another connection that I've had through the Alliance of Independent Authors, uh, which kind of gives away the fact that really, she's an author, she's a writer, she's in fact, many things. Author, uh, ghostwriter. Now, that's a, that's a fascinating term. Ghostwriter to some people where, you know, if, if we were to accidentally tell you who it is she's ghostwritten for, we'd have to kill you, that kind of thing. Uh, she's a writing coach. She's an editor, both of magazines type editor, but also a book editor, someone who can help you develop your story and that kind of thing. Uh, so she's got many, many strings to her bow and not least of which, which will come up in conversation a bit later. She's an extraordinary horsewoman who uh, has many equine skills and owns a wonderful horse called Val. And we'll talk about that later. But the person I've got on the show today is none other than Ros Morris. Hello there, Ros. Hello, Henry. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I didn't know anyone could say so much about me. 
<laughs> well, I don't know how anyone could not say that much about you, Roz, because you're, you're you're someone, as I say, with many strings to your bow, and that's something I appreciate because I'm someone who kind of does a bit of everything, you know, to 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 bring in a crust, uh, but also because of, we have diverse interests, and why shouldn't we express them as creative people? Now, uh, I've kind of said a little bit about you, but I think let's hand over to you, Roz, so you can tell the listeners a bit about yourself, you know, a bit of background, you know, where you grew up, a bit about your kind of career, your varied and interesting career, and kind of what, get to the point of what you kind of do now. Well, I grew up in Cheshire in a small village where no one really seemed to do anything um, that I regarded as terribly interesting with their lives. But I always thought I was going to do something. I didn't really know what. Um, I went to London University because I thought, well, London is a place where you can do things, although I still didn't know what. Um, <laughs> I I did an English degree, which is the kind of thing a very sort of quiet person does because I am just a quiet, thoughtful kind of person. I um, gradually found my way into a job in a publishing company and that really suited me. I really liked making books. But um, something that bothered me about the books we were making was um, we were making books and magazines that were about careers and they all seemed to be very dull. And I thought, oh, no, I really want to encourage people to go and follow their dreams and do big things as well as work yeah. in, in very um, well-known professions. And uh, I, I was sort of sometimes a bit of a saboteur. I would try and get articles into the paper that, that were um, more adventurous than the editors <laughs> wanted. And then they would pull them at the last minute. So it was this, this sort of tug of war. And really what was going on was I was thinking, I have got to do something bigger. And I didn't really know what, but um, I then met a writer and got on extremely well with him and married yeah. him. And uh, at that, that point... That was a r <laughs> rapid romance there. <laughs> Actually, it was um, about about a week. And, oh, wow. Um, yes, when I make up my mind, I just think that's what I'm going to do. Wow. But I found myself among people who were also writers. And it seemed like I'd found uh, not just one person who really understood me and, and thought in the same way as I did, but mm. a lot of people who mm. were all, it was quite natural for them to always be writing a book. And I thought, well, that feels natural to me too. So I started mm writing, teaching myself to write, went to the odd class and so on. Um, and at that point, I thought, oh, this, this will be me. This will be what I do. I, I will mm. write a book and I will send it off to a publisher or an agent. If it's good enough, then I will start my writing career. And nothing mm. turned out like that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I did along the way end up writing books for other people as a ghostwriter. And, and mm. thus, I really learned my trade because I worked with very commercial publishers who had very commercial requirements they knew exactly what mm. they needed for their audiences i i had to learn a, about a lot of different kinds of fiction and it was all fiction that i was writing right. um how how it all worked what the audiences needed what editors needed what was mm. necessary to be a professional writer so it's an absolutely brilliant apprenticeship and then yeah. i started uh, writing books of my own and i started teaching people because i recognized problems other people were having and I thought well yeah. I, I've been through that so I can help and from that I started teaching as well yeah. so that's probably led me to where I am today I have I've written four books for writers called Nail or Novel and yeah. I've written three novels of my own uh, yeah. not ghostwritten they are they are truly what I what I felt I should be writing all along it took me a very long yeah. time to find it um, yeah. and I've also written a travel memoir 
called Not Quite Lost, Travels Without a Sense of Direction. Gosh, you've packed a lot in there, Ros. I've actually, <laughs> uh, on my other screen, I've, I've got your website. So I think I, we should mention that, uh, and we perhaps we can talk a little bit about the fact that you've obviously got this passion for, uh, a bit like I have, passion for passing on the stuff that you've learned. And, and you've created this website and you've written books under the title of Nail Your Novel. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Because that's obviously, you know, you don't just accidentally write, was it, three or four books in that series now uh, and do a, a, an extensive website without actually having a passion for passing on the knowledge for, for teaching other people? Yes, um, it probably comes from two quarters, really. Um, I was taught by people who um, loved their craft, loved to talk about mm. it, loved to discuss what worked and what didn't, loved to help mm. each other. Mm. And uh, I just I just found it such a lovely nurturing atmosphere. Um, most of us in our lives have, have had teachers of some sort and we've had teachers who were not good at teaching or didn't want to teach and there were teachers yeah. who just changed your life because they were able to teach you and you were able to learn from them and they gave you things that you really cherish and yeah. I thought that's a really good good thing to do so that's I suppose where my um, zeal for teaching writers comes from um, mm. with the nail your novel series the first book I wrote was just a process book quite a, a simple book on how to start with an idea and get all the way to the end yeah. and it came about because I was mentoring for a company called Cornerstones Literary Consultancy what, right. what they did was they would help people um, they were developmental editors really they'd help people right. get their manuscripts to a stage where they were publishable mm. and um, I would I would look at manuscripts and I would think I know what this writer is trying to do it's not working but I can see in there how to mm. tell them how to do it and or how to explore what they could do that would make the book work better and so I yeah. saw all sorts of pitfalls that writers fell into as well as mm. my own and I also mm. saw that there were two elements to it there was the craft that they needed to know how books work on minds yeah. and they also needed to know how to organize the work so the first book I wrote was to address the problem of how to organize the work because that was the biggest problem I saw people had mm. I would say to somebody what you need to do is completely reshape this character's art. You need to put these two characters together and then you'd have much more, co more complex characters. You need to make the various crescendos in the plot happen at these points. And they would look at me and, and I could see them feeling, I've got 80,000 words. How do I do that? I can only see mm. you know, what's on the screen in front of me page by page. And so I thought what they need is to know how I do it because I find that quite mm. easy. Mm. So I, I wrote just a process book, which gives you instructions how mm. to make a small idea into a big enough one for a book, how to organize mm. it all, how to change lots of things. If someone gives you a helpful comment like I have yeah, um, yeah. and all that and how to do it and get to the end, because so many people give up because it just becomes overwhelming. But if you've mm. got a method, then it doesn't. And then the other mm. books in the series are about plot and characters the, the the specific ways that those work yeah uh, you said something in passing there which has made me go oh bing this is really interesting the way books work on minds <laughs> the psychology of uh being a novelist if you like there's of, of uh, uh, and of reading a novel, being engaged with story. This is actually a fascinating process. I mean, it's something that uh, you, you make it sound so dead easy, Ros, and I know, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, uh, young writers who struggle with, you know, these things that 
in some ways seem so obvious when they're right, don't they? And then, but to actually get to that point where they are right and the timing's right and and the, the that crescendo is right, it's actually quite a. It's it's like all these things. It takes a lot of practice to master these things, you know. So I'm really perhaps you'd like to say just a little bit about that, Ros, about the uh, what it is about a story about a novel that we human beings in psychological terms we find so powerful how does that work oh well um there's the fact that stories really engage our curiosity mm. and we want to know what happens and then also they engage our hearts because somehow we come to care about what happens mm. and so we we're taken on a journey where we get very involved in something mm. and that and that what a clever writer does is they skillfully know how to tell you things so that you will get involved and mm. prose i think is even more magic because unlike movies where you, you see everything you know it's, it's sort of it's yeah. like reality all you have to do is forget there's a box containing it yeah, but yeah. in prose it's actually just print but if it's been done well enough you forget your reading print it just goes straight in it goes into some yeah. i don't know literary cortex and and you're there and you're feeling the things that the writer wants you to feel and there's something about that that is incredibly intimate i think and yeah. i think that that's why books have such a hold over people's imagination because it's just you and the writer's mind it's two minds so yeah, there we absolutely are. but also i mean uh, the other thing that's come to my mind of course is that you and i as you know people in the business as it were know this kind of like the hero's journey uh joseph campbell and others where this we get involved because uh stories in many ways are archetypal aren't they that we engage with a particular kind of journey that the main character takes um and that this is a journey which is can be repeated in millions of different ways you know across all sorts of different genres but there is a kind of expectation for what's going to be delivered for the denouement at the end of the story and it can be upsetting when that doesn't happen, right? Sometimes a writer might do it deliberately. Ha ha, you were expecting this and I've done something else. But there is that kind of pattern, isn't there, that we we like the familiarity in a sense of the underlying structure of story. Structure is a very um, interesting concept because um, it looks like a formula. It, usually you can, unless some, uh, someone is doing something deliberately, um, mm. anti-structural um, there's probably a proper word for it but that's the word I'll use now um, <laughs> anti-structural will do yeah uh, but there, there is a kind of magic in in the way our minds expect certain things at certain times in the story yeah. but what what most of all I think we look for is significance and change we, we yeah. look for something um, that's what makes a story rewarding if um, the by the time you got to the end it's not the same as it was at the beginning it's also probably mm. not predictable but it also seems right yeah so those those are kind of constants really 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just before we kind of move on to the other meat of what we're going to be talking about today, I think it's worth pointing out that um, you have a website, rosmorris.org. And, uh, you know, right there at the top, there's there's your novels, your My Memories of a Future Life, uh, Life Form 3 and Ever Rest. Uh, just, you know, do you want to give people a, a little bit of flavour about what those three books are kind of about, the kind of stories they are? Well, I'm always interested in stories that, that are about people who are sort of troubled by some kind of feeling that they can't ever get rid of and they've got to resolve in some way. So my memories of future life is about a musician who is mysteriously um, struck, stricken down by repetitive strain injury, can't find a cure, mm. um, ends up going to sort of fringe healers and things. And mm. uh, by a long process, she is taken to another life but not in the past. She's taken to one in the future, um, right. her next incarnation. And wow. they start kind of feeling each other. And uh, it's an exploration of all sorts of ideas of how we influence each other. Um, the And also what we do when we lose hope, because really she wants mm. to go to the future because she can't see one of her own, because mm. playing the piano is everything. And I just thought it was a spooky idea, really. I was inspired by stories of people going to other lives by hypnosis. And I always thought, oh, what right. have you got that around in you all the time, whispering yeah, to yeah. you, what's it doing? And then I thought, swap it around and what do you get? Right. And I just thought, I, I have to go and explore this. Um, usually my stories start with a big idea that I, I am just compelled to spend time with, dwell in and explore. Yeah. So that was that one. Life Form 3 is um, set in the future. It's an unspecified time in the future when yeah. um, all the countryside has gone, really, because it's had to be built on. Um, mm. And there's one place that remains. It's a country estate, like a National Trust property. Imagine something like Downton Abbey. Yeah. And um, it's got fields and streams and valleys and woods and um, a few animals from the old times. And it's a theme park. Yeah. And the narrator works in the theme park and he's an artificial human. Um, and every now and again, his mind is wiped so that he can work um, efficiently and so he can deliver adverts to the people <laughs> yeah. who visit. And um, he starts dreaming that, his, that he's riding a horse. And this compels him to go searching and he starts to uncover all sorts of things from his own past. Yeah. And, and I managed to get my love of horses into that. I really wanted to write a, um, a tribute to to my own horse at the time, Absolutely. who uh, was much loved. Yeah. And the third one, Everest, um, is uh, about a, a man who has fallen into, into a glacier um, while climbing Mount Everest, and his body can't be recovered. And um, 20 years on, his body still hasn't been recovered, and the, the people who were close to him still kind mm. of can't get any resolution. And it's made much more complicated by the fact that he was a rock star. So right. his disappearance caused worldwide anguish. Mm. And um, still to this day, he is regarded as the, the great golden lost guy. Um, wow. His music is available everywhere. Videos are available of him young and beautiful, exactly as people imagine he is in the ice yeah. at the moment. And mm. until he comes back, they will not ever Wow. Great title. Great title. <laughs> Thanks for that little bit of flavor. Folks, go out and buy the books. Um, I've read the first two um, and they're just wonderful. I kind of 
quirky science fiction, that kind of genre. I don't quite know where, where you would place them. This is one of the things about traditional publishing, isn't it? They want to put you in a box. They want to say, ah, oh, well, we want to know what genre you are. So that, you know, you're going to get on that shelf there. Yours kind of hover somewhere in between sort of literary science fiction-y sort of stuff, don't they? They do a bit. Um, my memories of a future life might simply be psychological because right. the framing narrative is now. And then we see the future, but that could all be in her mind, or it yeah. could be real. Um, it's up to you to decide. Um, Life yeah. on Three is definitely futuristic, but I was told off yeah. for that because I put horses in it. Um, but I was also <laughs> told if you if your name was Jeanette Winston, you could do whatever you like. So I thought, well, I would yeah. do whatever I like. Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, folks, uh, they're great books. Uh, Ros writes beautifully. Now. You've come on to this show today partly to talk about your stuff because I think uh, as people are getting a feel for in these shows, I'm really interested in creativity, you know, and I've interviewed Dan Holloway and I've interviewed uh, Orna Ross and now yourself, all highly creative people. And I'm fascinated in the way that the mind works to allow us to be creative. And one of the interesting things about your, you know, your career, your day jobs, it were, is that you've spent, is it something like 25 years now, editing magazines that are aimed at general practitioners, the medical profession. And so that's actually given you a really good overview of the kind of mental health and psychology issues that recur time and time again, you know, over this extended period of time. And one of those things that you mentioned to me is uh, the problem for doctors about offering advice and support to patients who have depression or some other kind of life inhibiting, perhaps mental illness kind of problem. So can you tell us a bit about the insights you've gained through your job about the kind of issues that turn up time and time again, Roz? Yes. Now, it has to be said, I have no medical qualifications whatsoever. Sure. <laughs> My sure. degree is in English. But um, I have spent a, yeah, about 25 years editing um, a magazine for doctors. And uh, mm. there's been quite a lot of um, clinical material in that. And mm. something that comes up time and time again is the element of mindset and emotions in mm. illness all sorts of illnesses, not just mm. depression. I mean, de dep depression can arise from um, certain kinds of illnesses, or it can just mm. be a, pr a problem on its own. Um, mm. But um, the, I, I have seen time and again the um, just the, the element of mindset, what what illness does to a whole person, not just mm. to the body. It's to mm. their ability to live their lives, to do yeah. what matters to them. Um, it's, there are all sorts of ways in which people find themselves caught by surprise and shocked by something yeah. that, that is happening to them, it's developing within them. It's, uh, um, loss of control is a very difficult yeah. thing to, um, to deal with if, you, if you've never had your body misbehave and suddenly it does. Um, mm. the, the, there are enormous uh ramifications um and a lot of the pieces that that i edit when they're clinical they will talk about um a thing called signposting patients right. to places where they can talk to people who understand mm. what it's like to mm. uh, to be in this situation 
I can relate to this personally, having been diagnosed with prostate cancer a couple of years ago that just suddenly came out of the blue. And man, that took me by surprise, that's for sure. And what exactly what you're saying, I mean, that finding the right people to talk to who understand what it is that you're going through makes such a difference. I mean, obviously, in the last couple of years, it's all gone a bit squiffy because COVID. Uh, and we'll probably talk a bit about you know, COVID and doctor burnout in a little while. But uh, that was my kind of lived experience where absolutely, as you say, that um, finding the right person to talk to in the medical profession who could point you in the right direction to then be able to talk to other people who knew what you're going through. And my partner, Anne, some years ago now, uh, was struck down with Crohn's disease and had exactly the same kind of experience of what the hell is this? Where's this come from? Uh, and the other problem that can arise, isn't it, Ros, is that you can end up being defined by your illness. You know, you can be the most extraordinary person, you know, creative genius, whatever, but suddenly people kind of pigeonhole you according to the illness you're actually suffering from which that just compounds the problem doesn't it you know you're already feeling crap frankly and then people kind of forget who you were or who you are in fact mm, and you don't know who you are either sometimes yeah, uh, yeah. because drugs can really mess you up <laughs> yeah, um, yeah yeah yes I, I read a lot about that too you have to gently warn people about how they might feel and oh, anyway a huge minefield which you have already explained uh, extensively i mean are, are there uh any specific instances that you can remember in your experience of particular things that have been flagged up you know you know perhaps surprising things um i used to write them down and then they became commonplace <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I started, that's, that sounds quite flip. But when I when I started doing the work on these magazines, I, I would come back with huge notes saying, um, oh, "People who have heart conditions might feel like this," and I'd never thought about that before. And mm. um, gradually, I've I've got used to to the fact that almost anything can, if it hit, hits you the wrong way emotionally, mm. take away a sense of who you are, take away possibilities you you might think you had. And it may not in the end, but it mm. just is. It's such a huge thing to adjust to, or it can be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and also, if the, you know, people are very independent, they don't like to have to ask for help. And yeah. uh, so the the really as functioning human beings, um, illnesses challenge us on many many levels. As you know, I've been involved with raising money for a charity called Combat Stress for many years now, and I think this is. Um, something that's very striking amongst these guys who are you know the people are in the armed forces they're they're trained to physical levels that are almost kind of olympic athlete levels uh, on many occasions particularly if they're heading out to combat to be combat ready and they are trained to be macho they're trained to be self-sufficient they're trained not to kind of uh need to ask for help and then then they step on a landmine or an ied goes off or it, it could even be something as simple as they're driving along a road and the the bank of the road gives way and they're suddenly their humvee or whatever it is goes you know flips over and they've they've suffered a life-changing injury and i think that's a very obvious example where someone who 
one moment is you know a combat ready soldier as fit as a fiddle you know and ready to go in suddenly is absolutely helpless and uh needs is can't function without the help of their comrades and is uh, the, so the rehabilitation process for these people and you know one tends to say guys but the, you know there's affected a lot of women uh, as well now um where um they go from being this kind of almost superhero to being someone who wonders well what on earth do i do with my life now and this is part of the rehabilitation is it's as much you know obviously there's physical rehabilitation for someone who's lost their legs or something like that but the psychological rehabilitation is uh, massively more complex because it has changed their life they had expectation and they trained for a particular kind of life and then suddenly literally it's been cut off like that um now that's obviously a, quite a specialist example but it can even be for someone you know in a more main, mundane sense in life where you know they were used to playing football in the sunday league but they've broken their leg so badly and they can't carry on anymore just this week i edited a piece about um uh patella fracture which is kneecap and um it was a a footballer and one of the um aspects of her recovery was going to be getting proper psychological support so that she could um cope with whatever choices she'd have to make um Mm. but also they, they were hoping she would be able to return to full professional play if everything was done right so yes it's mm. it is now a much bigger part of medicine um suddenly mm. psychological support is but but also to um pick up your point about about combat um i've, mm. I've met quite a few people who've been in special forces and mm. um they if they don't suffer a catastrophic injury or, or an injury mm. that that means they have to stop often there comes a point where the the mental toll is too much they suddenly yeah. realise uh, they used to feel superhuman. Now they don't. They don't know why, yeah. or they yeah. or they they feel weak because they they don't. And it, it sets up this very difficult state of mind. Yeah, uh, that what you said there. I I recognise from my reading military history where um, you know, places like Vietnam, but also in Afghanistan and others, where people have done multiple tours. You know, the first few tours, well, the first tour, they're they're scared shitless, frankly. And it's like, oh, I hope I get through this. And then you get to the point where, yeah, okay, I can handle this. I kind of know what's going on. And so long as I don't accidentally put my foot on something, I can more or less be okay. And they they gain that what you might call kind of veteran status, if you like, that the younger soldiers look up to them because they'll probably save their lives you know but then there comes a point where someone's done say three tours or four tours let alone going back for a fifth or sixth tour somewhere they know it's a numbers game right it doesn't matter how good you are as a soldier how skilled you are how rambo-ish you might think you are there comes a point where they start thinking there's one of them out there with my name on you know, this is what happened to many people in the First World War, of course, in the trenches where they spent far too long in the trenches. And you start to feel like, yeah, there's one out there with my name on it. And it's just a matter of when that can happen. And so what you're describing with your special forces veterans sounds to me like much the same mm-hmm. kind of thing where 
you know, particularly if they've lost other comrades who they saw as, well, he was just as skillful as I was. He was just as tough as I was, but he bought it, you know, or he got, you know, had to get sent home. And there is a kind of inevitability that builds up, isn't there? Um, yes. And also, I think there's, there are very complex emotions once they start feeling like that, because they yeah. feel they failed. They've uh, they shouldn't feel like that. Um, yeah. It's it, you know, they're not brave enough. I mean, this is ridiculous. Yeah. If, you, if you think what they are being asked to do, it's yeah. it's just amazing they can do it at all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this isn't even taking into account that, you know, someone you know some, someone's conscience might start playing on them because you know what's the difference it's a very fine line between being a highly skilled highly trained soldier who does what he does for his country and being a psychopath who's just killed lots of people mm. right you know this is this is complex psychology that we're dealing with now and i think the other thing is in in the modern world you know soldiers going into combat with helmet cams on and that kind of stuff we're right there you know and we're people are used to playing the video games but in video games, you don't have that psychological kind of aspect, do you? You don't have that kind of, oh, that's that's a real person that's just gone down there, you know. Um, fascinating stuff. So thanks for that. But, um, now, the other thing is, obviously, um, GPs nowadays are expected to do more and more and more. I mean, you've, we've just been talking briefly about, you know, them now giving psychological support as well as you know sticking a stethoscope on your chest and you know tapping your knee or whatever you know like in the old days uh, and of course the, the pandemic over the last couple of years has put an enormous strain on the national health service and um one of the um things that you mentioned to me in your notes was the question of doctor burnout do you want to say a bit about that, Ros? Well, it's not a new thing, um, but, but it's been made a lot worse um, over the last mm. 18 months or so. Um, really, burnout happens when very dedicated, hardworking, conscientious, conscientious people um, who don't want to let anybody down just mm. have had too much. Um, their own work ethic and sense of responsibility really destroys them, what they expect mm. of themselves. Um, and um it's it's a fine line isn't it because um we have to push ourselves and motivate ourselves and be disciplined and um uh, and give ourselves high standards but mm. there comes a point where we might ask too much of ourselves and mm. um doctors particularly seem to to um get into these situations in the nhs because the nhs just gives them more and more things to do that aren't possible and they mm. they have people they don't want to disappoint and mm. um yeah it, it's a big problem but um yes but it, it i remember a time when it wasn't talked about and mm. um in the time i've been working on medical papers it's become something that first of all had to be dragged out into the open and mm. um prominent uh, doctors who were high up in the British Medical Association set up groups to um, invite people to come out into the open and talk about it. And mm. and so there is a much healthier um, atmosphere um, about it now. But it's still it's still a big problem, especially with what's been going on in, in the last um, 18 months. 
I think this is a, an interesting point because I think most of us have been aware for quite a long time that junior doctors are often expected to work the most ridiculous hours. But because of COVID, this is just spread throughout the medical profession. I have a friend who is an anaesthetist and he ended up running an ICU unit during you know the worst months of the pandemic and was just working ludicrous hours you know hours that most normal human beings would be on the floor just wouldn't be able to manage and that kind of burnout of course has consequences uh, I mean not just for them personally I mean that's bad enough because their concern is that their burnout is going to affect their ability to treat yes. the patients. One, one the wrong charge. move. It absolutely torments you if you start thinking like that. You've got to have confidence that you're thinking clearly and you're doing the right thing, but it is really easy to make a mistake. And yeah. we don't, we often don't appreciate how careful these people are and how careful they yeah. have to be and how careful they're being all the time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and one of the things uh, that, of course, you know, recently on the show talked about the fact that there's been attempts made to set up kind of support groups amongst doctors. Because you know, I think this is the other thing. Interesting parallel. We were just talking about the armed forces where, of course, uh, most of the guys didn't really want to talk about this kind of stuff. You know, they were trained to be highly avoidant and, you know, just not discuss their emotions or whatever. And I think for a long, long time, the medical profession suffered from much the same kind of thing where, you know, you all, you don't want to confess how completely knackered you are and how worried you are about your performance and that kind of stuff. So there's an interesting kind of parallel there, isn't there? Mm. And has there been stuff in your magazine about, you know, the group, you know, attempts, to support doctors and medical staff to try and you know deal with these problems absolutely and i edited a column just yesterday about that oh, actually right. yes um it was a, a doctor who was saying that um mistakes do happen unfortunately yeah. um and what you have to do is all support each other and try your best to make sure that the mistake can't happen again if it was avoidable um mm. but also human nature being what it is i mean sometimes sometimes things happen because um the, the patient does something and then mm. they they don't realize that it was their fault and not the doctor's fault um yeah. there was a, there's a particular case i'm thinking of where a patient hadn't chased up um their own test results they thought right. the doctor was going to tell them about the test mm. results and the doctor thought the patient should, was coming back for the test results and somehow there was miscommunication and something right. went astray and it's just really easy and that's one tiny tiny thing and you wouldn't have thought it you think it's a bit of bureaucracy with common sense yeah. but it's just yeah. it's so easy for something like that to happen you can have systems that make sure you know you put a, a flag on someone's notes and call them and make sure that they're mm. called but if something else happens that means they don't get the call and and they're a mistake can be made um it shows you what you know knife edges yeah these things are sometimes on so so this article is discussing how uh practices can make sure these kinds of things don't happen if possible but also just kind of pull together and um support each other um mm. with, within the the practice team i am now talking like an article 
<laughs> but, but just sort of make sure um, that there is as little sort of blame and self-recrimination as possible. Yeah. Obviously, do what is necessary to make sure it doesn't again, but don't brood on it for the next 20 years. And the, the, one of the cri critical things amongst this is that it you know, can easily be overlooked that because uh, local general practices for the vast majority of the population are the first point of contact that they have with medicine, the, the world of doctors and all the rest of it, the, uh, that relationship between patient and their general practitioner or the other staff there is absolutely crucial psychologically uh, because I've noticed uh, since COVID over the last couple of years, you know, and it started because I got my diagnosis literally just as people were saying, ah, COVID is a thing. Mm -hmm. And just before the first kind of lockdown. So in fact, my, the onset of my uh, first radiotherapy treatment and stuff was delayed because suddenly the NHS went into COVID mode and a lot has changed. I've realized now, in what was the relationship between me and my general practitioner and, and the local surgery and and how it is now, it's now much. And in fact, doctors have just been given explicit instructions, haven't they, to focus on giving the booster jabs and stuff and to let some of the lesser complaints and stuff slide a bit. You know, there was actually this meeting uh, with the government, wasn't there, just a week or two ago. and. I'd already noticed, yeah, I can't just get to see my general practitioner anymore. There's a number of barriers put in my way. Oh, uh, could it be a telephone appointment? Oh, could you speak to a nurse instead? Da 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 da. -da. So there's all these, you know, uh, f f like one of those stories where do you want to choose option A or do you want to choose option B? You know, I think your husband knows something about this, doesn't he? Mm. About these these kind of stories where oh, if you choose option A, mm. you'll end up here. If you option B, you'll end up there, and that's kind of how it's become. And I think, in a sense, that you know, because I'm old. Right. It's sort of sad because I used to feel like I had a kind of relationship with my general practitioner that I don't have anymore or I'm not allowed to have anymore. I can't just get to see my GP and sit down and have a chat with them and end up coming away feeling better. And maybe I've got some placebo tablets in my hand. I don't know. Something else that I, I remember from an article was that um, yeah, the, the NHS is, is having to cope with the fact that they don't have enough people to, to yeah. give the kind of care they would like to, that you know, the, the people who are in those caring professions really want to. And something yeah. I remember a doctor writing was that it would be a pity if all the simple things were taken away from them. So a woman comes in for a yeah. pill prescription and they, yeah. they sort of take her blood pressure, make sure she has no contraindications and they send her away with the pill prescription. And yeah. um, they said that may seem like a waste of do a doctor's time. But what the doctor sees is somebody comes in. She's well. She's enjoying life. She's healthy. Yeah. They do check, make sure yeah. she's healthy. Give her something. She goes out happy. That has been yeah. a 10 minutes that's life affirming yes yes yeah. they would love to do more of this as well as the illness that's yeah. unfortunately there aren't enough doctors to go around that's the, the biggest yeah. problem of all yeah absolutely and this is what the sense i have you know and i'm someone who's had cancer you know you, and, mm. and in some ways i'm i i'm sort of on a slightly prioritized list somewhere i get i gather but 
most of the time it certainly doesn't feel like it uh just getting through to reception to make an appointment sometimes uh, you know or 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 oh, those infuriating te- I, I i should do a show just about the the infuriating psychological aspects of telephone reception systems where you oh, choose yes. option if you want this choose option one if you want that choose option two and none of the options actually cover precisely what you need so you're left mm. sitting there thinking can i just talk to a receptionist and instead it just sends you back to option one option two and you can end up feeling it more ill more unwell than when you started the phone call uh there's a lot in this i think sometimes the kind of people who are engineers who design these systems could do with some more psychological training about the actual effect it has on the person trying to get through to get the information or make the appointment but anyway that's that's for another time and i'm don't want to start ranting now ros thanks for that and we could talk all day about you know the, the 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 problems facing the nhs and the psychological effect that that is having on the populace at general at a time when there is still a pandemic going around there's still you know the omicron thing now i think we're all going to know the greek alphabet by the time that covid yeah. finally disappears aren't we yeah. quite extraordinary but the other uh, thing that's fascinating about you ros is you ride horses and you love riding and i was very pri- i've been privileged to meet both your horses now i've met your first horse byron who i should explain to people was a gentle giant he was an enormous was he formerly a cavalry horse or something he, he's the kind of horse the household cavalry have in fact uh, yeah. one day a guy said to me the household cavalry would buy him from you if you wanted to sell him wow there we go <laughs> and in fact we made a bit of a video together we did that know, was great that, fun that he was... loved it he absolutely loved the attention he really liked that it was so much fun and that's still available online on youtube somewhere folks i'll put a link to it because it it was um, i I did it for a particular reason to to um educate people about you know horse personship and the kind of tackle and stuff that's used and all the bits and pieces that are necessary to just to be able to sit on a horse you know uh and it was a i had a fascinating day out and we made this kind of little video together and it was great fun uh you have another house horse now called val who's smaller than byron Mm -hmm. was and you do a lovely kind of running commentary on your facebook page about your adventures with val as you're learning to do things together go riding together at places that are still strange to him and learning dressage and that kind of stuff it's absolutely wonderful and i'd really like you to kind of talk about um this aspect of i mean to a certain extent it's kind of sports psychology you know mm. learning to ride riding's a sport and so there's a you know a degree of sports psychology in there but of course the interesting thing when you're on the back of a beastie the psychology goes both ways doesn't oh, it it's so complicated <laughs> go on so, so talk to us about that because i think you know this is really fascinating and i i, I love you know reading whatever you write about your adventures with that so tell people something about val and you know what you do with him and this kind of experience that you have that's this sort of joint experience well val was quite a shock after my previous horse my previous horse was very confident um and he just kind of knew what was what and he looked after me val was the opposite of everything he was incredibly sweet and still is but he's not brave and um (laughs) i think also he had been incredibly sensitive and i think he had been treated quite roughly not 
not whipped or anything like that, but I think where he'd been before, he had just been kind of shoved around and bossed. Mm. And he came to me with really anxiety. (laughs) And um, absolutely everything made him think the world was going to end. And he got me off several times. And this was all, um, this became highly scary for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, but but really he he had very little confidence very little trust in people mm. um but an incredibly genuine nature so gradually i've been working with him to get him confident about about things and and he is he's sort of repaying my faith in him enormously he, he is just mm. an absolutely lovely creature uh, but mm. the the general things that people imagine the, the, the general mental um, hurdles that people imagine you have when you ride a horse is mm. that you have to be determined and yeah. and sort of bold. Um, and that's really only a tiny bit because the really mm. interesting thing, and this is where it goes beyond just horses if, if people who aren't really interested in horses. Um, mm. it, a horse is um, incredibly aware of all your emotions. And... Mm. Um, there's a whole spectrum of self-talk that goes on when you're trying to learn something or when you're trying to teach something mm. something that you may not be aware of um and mm. it probably doesn't matter if you're if you're bashing a piano and just trying to get something right the piano <laughs> yeah. doesn't care how you feel about it the horse yeah, yeah, yeah. knows how you feel about it and you might not know how you feel about it so you mm. might be feeling frustrated and thinking why can't i do this it's not why can't he do Mm. do this it's why can't i do this you know and you get that clenched teeth look and feeling they feel it all they feel absolutely Mm. everything so um something that i've i've had to learn is to be aware of that kind of feedback loop of of Mm. it going on if if i'm trying to teach my horse something if if i ask him to just move his head that way and not move anything else and he starts going sideways mm. and i'll think uh, there are two ways to think about this it's why can't you do this we've done this loads of times or why can't yeah. i do this i've done this loads of times yeah. or there's what what did i ask did i need to did i ask too much uh, do i need to give another instruction do i need to so um mm. you train yourself to be very much in the moment and mm. also, um, I have found it is incredibly rewarding because I notice what this creature is giving me just mm. through me giving the slightest signal. And really, now I'm going to sit here. This is, this is my hat holding the reins. That was mm. actually quite a strong rain aid. And you probably couldn't see it. Right. And yeah. he can feel me breathing. Yeah. He can. The other day, I asked him to move backwards out of a, a puzzle that we were that we were doing, a, a sort of mm. mounted puzzle thing. I didn't know if he would do it. I, I just kind of went and sort of pulled myself up, put my weight a tiny bit forwards, gave a tiny signal. This is how big they were, by the way. And he walked backwards for me. And it was wow. it was like thought. These animals yeah. are so sensitive that when you mm. develop the rapport you mm. almost just whisper something and they'll do it and th- that is um that is why they can feel any frustration that you have because bits of your body get caught up doing things that they shouldn't mm. so anyway a horse teaches you enormous self-awareness um i've never mm. been a person who's interested in meditation but i find that mm. going out for a ride 
I go out for an hour and a half and I feel like I've been out all day because of the mental engagement mm. of me and my yeah, creature. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so, so that, that's the magic of it. Uh, that's really interesting what you're talking about, uh, what you're saying there about um, self-awareness, because... I think there are a few circumstances. Um, I mean, I, you know, I've been kind of re recording little kind of uh, 10, 15 minute meditation things. And one of the things that uh, is, you know, quite a popular form of meditation is, if, if you like, a body scan to make you aware of what you're actually, what your sensations are that you're experiencing, you know, from the top of your head down to the tip of your toes. And it's quite surprising sometimes when someone says, oh, now focus on, for example, uh, the one I've just recorded for this show, uh, I, I kind of mention, oh, yeah, you know, uh, quite often we'll carry around a lot of tension in our jaw without realizing oh, yeah. it that when we get when we get stressed or frustrated you know we tend to sort of grind our teeth a bit and so one of the things to focus mm. in on is so are you holding any tension in your jaw and it's yeah. really surprising when someone points that out it's like oh my god yes you know and you relax your jaw and then that relaxes your neck that relaxes your shoulders and an awful lot of stuff you wanted to say something about this yeah because this is how i relax my horse relax his jaw ah. get, just do i've trained him to do a very tiny thing with the bit and that releases all down here all his back all his shoulders yeah. everything the jaw yeah. is the jaw just well, who say. knew, folks? I'm I'm doing re I'm doing relaxation on the beach equine version Ooh. before long. You know, <laughs> that's fascinating. But yes, so you become this self awareness of the effect of the uh, of what you're thinking and the effect that has on what's actually going on with you physically. And of course, you're you're acutely aware of it when you're riding a horse because you then get feedback from the horse mm. you know you so you oh god my my thighs are so tense i'm gripping too hard or whatever and you relax and you immediately get a, a feedback from your horse you realize oh you're gripping the reins really tightly and you relax that grip and that has an effect on the horse this must be an extraordinary you know it's an extraordinary bond that you build up yes with it, the animal wasn't it it really is because you know, they they can feel you breathing they they kind of know what you're thinking um the other day i had to um tell off another horse to try and make it go away because it's going to come and bother us and yeah. val thought i was telling him off he just got the emotion wow <laughs> and That's that was really, really interesting. interesting he just sort of there's, there's something they understand on a very deep level and um i don't i don't have conversations about what this proves about whether horses are intelligent or not it either proves mm. they're very intelligent or it proves that we are much closer to animals in our emotions <laughs> than than we think yeah. we are the other thing that you know in the context of this show that's making me think about is uh there are nowadays uh, a fair number of kind of uh, courses available, therapeutic courses, therapeutic riding courses, mm. uh, aren't there? Well, now, this can be, I mean, notably I've seen um, them for like autistic kids and that kind of stuff. But also, you know, there's benefits to riding for, you know, even a galumph like me, you know, if you're suffering from depression or something of that, or stress or anxiety, one kind or another. As you say, the way that it kind of, takes you out of yourself mm. be because your focus must be on that bond you're creating 
with the animal which and one of the best ways that you know as i've realized over the last years one there's a brilliant book uh, that I read earlier this year called Chatter. And one of the things, and it's all about the fact that we go around most of the time with this incessant chatter yes. inside yes. our heads. Yes. You know, we're talking from the moment I wake up in the morning, you know, get in the shower and chat, 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 chat is buzzing away. And most of it's rubbish. And things like mindfulness can help you to kind of separate yourself from the chatter look these are just thoughts they don't necessarily thoughts aren't the truth mm. they don't necessarily mean anything sometimes it's easier to you know think oh yeah that's absolutely right and other times it's more difficult you know if the chatter is more persistent but this is why uh quite often not all the time and this is a subject that's under review at the moment i know physical activity of one kind or another can be a fantastic way of taking us outside our head getting rid of the chatter right silencing that garbage even if it's just for a while even if it's just a few minutes you know and so horse riding is a beautiful example where it's quite interesting the way you describe you've got chatter going on inside your head um but you have to learn to control that chatter because you know it's affecting the animal that you're riding mm. Yes. And once you start thinking in terms of um, positives as well. So that exercise where I was just saying, just turn your head and walk. And I'd have to think, oh, can't quite do it. So how will we solve this? Again, it's all very positive. How are we going to build on this? How are we going to? And we have a good experience, the two of us. And gradually yeah. we built on that more and more. So he he thinks, oh, well, I'll try this and I won't get stressed. And, um, and he doesn't get cheeky or anything. He just wants to yeah. do what I want and figure yeah. out what it is. And um, it's incredibly positive. It's an extraordinary form of teamwork, isn't it? It you is. Know, it as is. Well, it's that... like you two are one body, one body mind. Yeah, which is where, of course, the myth, the myth of the centaur comes from. You know, mm -hmm. that, that wonderful notion of the, the half, half person, half horse. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for telling us about that, Roz. I mean, it's, uh, I know. We have in the past talked all day about horses <laughs> and I'm sure we could do it again. And perhaps we will in a different context. But I think that's a really lovely insight into a particular form of sports psychology and the very positive benefits that, that it can have. Um, and I think, you know, I'll try and get some links together for these uh, therapeutic horse riding courses and uh Oh, but does pony trekking still exist? I, I, think it does. I don't yes, know. Yes. Pony trekking, that's one of those things that uh, I remember my sister went pony trekking once many, many years ago. I think it was in Snowdonia and she came back deciding it was a bad idea. But uh, I think that was most, mostly to do with the Welsh weather rather than anything else. But there we go. You can get sore. Um, you can get sore. Um, now, there was something else we wanted to talk a little bit about before the end of the show. Uh, well, a couple of things, actually. And because this is now only it's a monthly schedule for the show, if you're OK, I don't mind us talking a bit longer than I would yeah. normally talk. Um, and uh, I, I've kind of um, mentioned it that, you know, I've, you're not the first kind of artist I've had on the show. I mean, Dan Holloway I mentioned, Orna Ross, and of course Carrie Orson Polthouse and her amazing singing groups and stuff. That was absolutely extraordinary. And they've talked about the experiences. Um, but I think that I'd like you to talk a bit more about that journey that 
we talked a little bit about at the beginning of the show. Uh, the, 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 the grit and resilience it's taken to turn away from what I assume is a reasonably lucrative number of ghostwriting for other people and, you know, churning out, you know, uh, super, what you might call supermarket literature, you know, mm. the kind of uh, stuff written by or uh, supposedly written by slebs uh, and that kind of those kind of people that you might see on supermarket shelves to going to, yeah, literary science fiction and 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 really fascinating stuff about, uh, you know, stately homes in the future, people by robots and maybe some other kind of beastie. Um, that, you know, you, you talk quite blithely about it, Rob, <laughs> but that uh, must have been quite a journey that's tested at times your resilience to the limit. There must have been times when you thought, what on? earth am i doing oh is, yeah <laughs> is, is, it, is it worth is it worth it and uh, when you're in that kind of position i i know creatively where you, you're calling your own kind of it's almost an existential moment isn't it where you're calling what you do into question who you are comes into question do you want to talk a bit about that Ross? yeah it is difficult um if you're um if you're going it alone as, as I do self-publishing mm. it, it's 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 all you you the, there's no one has chosen you for a start and mm. they do feel oh, right we're behind you you go and do your thing um mm. and I've I have often struggled with not having been chosen <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah also um I think I I could have been if I'd been prepared to change my work a lot so yeah. uh, after I I did a lot of ghostwriting, I remember I went to um, a party. I was invited to um, the launch of a book called How to Write a Bestseller because of the the novels oh, I'd right. ghostwritten. Um, except they then realised that they couldn't use the interview with me because they I wasn't allowed to say what I'd written. So I was invited to the party <laughs> anyway, and I sort of got right. talking to a lot of a lot of people, literary agents and publishers. Yeah, yeah. And as soon as I mentioned who I'd written about, their jaws hit their wine glasses, who I'd oh, written yeah. it. And they, um, they said, people were doing that. Really? <laughs> I left that party thinking, oh, my luck has changed at last. Because uh, I'd been looking for, for an agent for a novel I was writing. Um, so I, I contacted them all. And um, when they found that what I was writing was nothing like the the bestsellers that I'd been writing they sort of gradually mm. started to lose interest and they, they mm. a few of them looked at my manuscript and said oh can you just make this more of a thriller you know just make it a straightforward thriller <laughs> and I thought well I'm being given a choice here aren't I uh, which yeah. is fit the market and start your career by getting a publishing deal um, with someone mm. high up in Hodder by the way <laughs> mm. or yeah. continue to go it alone and I'm I sort of sat down, started working on it, and I thought, well, I can't do anything but what my heart tells me I must do with it. Mm. And so I really, whenever, if I've been given chances to to go the traditional way, I've always found mm. I simply can't do, I can't make the compromises they wanted. I always had mm. to be true to myself. And this, I think, partly came from having written books for other people where I'd quite happily mm. do whatever they needed because that was the job. Um, yeah, yeah. But when it came to my own books, 
I had a strong sense of what it meant to have my own name on them and to have my mm. soul represented by them. They yeah, would yeah. be because someone reads a book and they they feel like you know you've you've had a really meaningful experience together. Um, mm. So I just would always end up thinking, no, this is this is just right somehow. I always had a strong sense mm. of discovering what was right, and and I do I do get. Um, I, I do get uh, quite quite a lot of moments where I think, oh, what am I doing? I I could be just earning a lot more money uh, by by writing very commercial books, but I wouldn't be happy about it. I I mm. wouldn't be leaving behind something that I would be proud to look at in a few years' time. Um, mm. So I I I think I do bouncing quite well. I I. I mm. get down, and you know, I did have a, a, a nice big strop recently saying, I'm not writing any more books, this is just too soul destroying. I've had enough, <laughs> I've put everything into Ever Rest, and oh, I don't know, hardly anything's happening with it, which is what you always feel like. Yeah. But then yeah. I was, the next morning, I was thinking, well, that idea that I've got for another one, um, you know, this, it's a sort yeah, of yeah. thing that's going on. Um, so I get I get ups and downs, and um, the the people mm. who are close to me have to put up with that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they probably know yeah. that before long I'll be saying I have this idea about it's, it's a kind of yeah. self generating thing. It it is the way I am. I I will mm. always create things, um, mm. and and I've I've also discovered because I've been writing for a long time that, that there are probably several stages to uh, the the writing state. There's, the first one mm. is I've actually blogged about this. The first one's enthusiasm. So you start off, you think, oh, this is great. I found a thing that I really like. Oh, this is wonderful. I'm having ideas. I'm just writing it. It's coming out. I haven't bought a big long book. It's great. Um, yeah. And then you start measuring yourself and getting feedback and discovering that um, you've only learned about a tenth of what you needed to learn just by teaching yourself. And then you that you gradually start dismantling what you know because of the feedback you get and all the things you didn't know you yeah. had to know. And that can be really dispiriting. And you think, oh, I used to enjoy this, but now I don't know what I'm doing at all. I have no pleasure in it. I don't seem to, the things I knew how to do, they, they are uh, childish and I was totally unsophisticated. I'm not satisfying myself or mm. anyone. And then gradually you rebuild. That's the third stage. You kind of come out mm. of it. And in that journey, what you've learned is more where you truly fit and where you find the biggest rewards, because you do it by just inevitably returning to things that intrigue you, your deepest self, mm. um, that move you, that you want to explore. So you kind of build yourself as a creative yeah. person through this process and i think resilience comes from that actually because you develop a sense of who you are and who you're not so that there might mm. be surface frustrations and they they um they might become very frustrating but you also mm. might just have something that a little thing that says no this this is me that's what i should do um that's not mm. me but but this really is and i've got to keep on doing it that's a fascinating process there, and it's one I recognise as well. Um, and I think there's—I uh, I don't know. This is where it can come down to personality, because one of the th things that I've learnt in the last year that I didn't have—I um, I always had this kind of demon on my shoulder trying to tell me that I was crap at everything, and uh, somehow fought against that in spite of that 
to produce whatever I produced. So things have changed quite radically for me in the last year because what I learned was self-compassion. Uh, and it's it's kind of changed my perspective on uh, my creative output and what I think I want to be doing. Um, and I'm just wondering whether that's something, either of those things you recognise. Do you feel that actually one of your strengths has been that you've you've been very uh, compassionate towards yourself about this process? Or do you think it's, mm. do you acknowledge that actually uh, you've been your own most ferocious critic over the years and that's what drives you? Both, I think. And also I think a number of the points we, we've raised in this, in this discussion have come down to compassion, understanding the difficulty mm. and, and giving yourself a break. Um, actually, I had mm. a riding instructor years ago who said to me, don't be so hard on yourself. And mm. I, it's taken me years to kind of work out where I was being unnecessarily hard. Um, mm. And um, yeah, you do have to sort of think, okay, you can't get everything right at once, but you'll get it right gradually because you really want mm. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is something else uh, that's interesting as well for those of us who've decided to go the self-publishing route, who, however, we don't want people to think, oh, self-publishing, that's a bit rubbish, isn't it? You know, loads mm -hmm. of typos and and that kind of stuff. And, and I'm certainly in the camp of absolutely not. Uh, and in <laughs> fact, have you, looked at many, have you looked at a lot of traditionally published books lately? Mate, mm -hmm. they don't have the editors and proofreaders that they used to, that's for sure. Uh so that's that's kind of an interesting fine line where I do, you know, and I I think I will always be the kind of person who says, oh, typo there, typo there, typo there, and want to eliminate that, you know, as far as possible. We can perhaps never eliminate it 100%, but certainly if it's having my name on it, I want it to be the mm. highest possible quality. But also doing it in a way that is, you know, it brings in compassion. I mean, in my own example, um, I'm not going to bore people with too many details, but the, the book I'm currently in the process of, please God, finishing, I've been working on now for something like seven years. Uh, it's a nonfiction book, not a novel. Uh, I, I, but I, you know, and I'm having to forgive myself because, yeah, I had cancer in the middle of it. And mm. hey, there's been COVID. And uh, it's a big big book it's going to be over 600 pages when it's done and i'm also took on the project of doing all the design and layout myself mm -hmm. and i I'm like mad. doing I'm that mad. <laughs> you know so you could lots of people listening will probably go yeah control freak and they're probably right to a certain extent but what's interesting is when i started the book I was in a frame of mind where I was beating myself up for why haven't you finished the book yet? Why haven't you got that done? Why haven't you got the rah, 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 rah? I was getting really angry with myself. And now it's like, do you know what, mate? It's just going to take whatever time it's going to take. And it will be, you know, we, I know it will be a good standard. So just be patient with yourself. You know, there's no point trying to beat myself up to get it finished any sooner. But so as a creative person, I think many of us in, in this kind of field, that we have multiple personalities to an extent, don't we? And it requires that, it, you know, if nothing else, there's the left brain, right brain thing, you know, the creative side and then the editing side. And one of the problems I suffered from for a long time, I know, and you might recognize this, Rosie, is I've written a paragraph. Oh, I could write that paragraph much better. And I'd, it was so hard to make progress 
because I was criticizing the stuff I'd literally just written rather than, do you know what, get a first draft down and stick it in a drawer for a bit and then go back. What's Has your process evolved as, as well, Ros, as mine has? It, it has, uh, from problems like that, yes. Um, that's why I wrote the first aerial novel book, because I recognised I had solved problems that other people were having trouble with, and I suddenly thought, oh, everyone has these troubles. And um, yeah. I, yes, I... I have learned to allow myself to leave some things rough because you can't do everything at once. Mm. Um, the, the novel that I published this year uh, yeah. took me seven years and mm. um, 23 drafts. Um, wow. Yes. And, um, wow. It, it, but that was what it took to, to get it to my satisfaction mm. because I can't do it all right in one go um yeah. Yeah. And, and with that kind of book most people can't um yeah. so yes i i have i have come to um just be relaxed with the process um there yeah. are rough phases and i know that with the next book i'll i'll be doing that i'm almost dreading the the clumsy times yeah. that i will have with it but i know enough now to know that mm. all books have clumsy times all because yeah. it's like learning to do something you you know yeah. you expect perfection immediately particularly if you're an adult children don't mind yeah but um yeah. if you're an adult you think well i'm grown up i should be able to do things relatively well and you know yeah. once or you know, the first or second go but that's not how things work particularly creative yeah. work where you're often discovering a lot as well so yeah. um yes i i have i am learning to be more more forgiving of rough times because if you don't go through those you don't get anything at all yeah yeah absolutely yeah i mean i know and you and i both know who they are. there are people who crank out a novel a week something like that but i'm not sure they're the kind of novels i want to write i'm sure they're very successful at what they do and good luck to them but i think uh there's a um yeah there's a certain satisfaction uh that comes from the labor itself isn't mm. there uh, and I think, in a sense, it can sound terribly pompous and grandiose, but here we are. It's this program about psychology. So, we, we, you know, let's go here for a moment. There's a kind of um, uh, nourishment of the soul that comes from doing creative work that you're proud of. Oh, there is. Yeah? Yes. Uh, and it's different because I'm, you know, I'm a businessman as well. I run a small business, graphic design business. And I know that for a lot of that work, you've got a deadline and you do have to accept, is it good enough when it goes out the door? And if it's good enough and the client's happy and they pay your invoice, that's usually the sign. If the client pays your invoice, that's a kind of satisfaction of its own, you know. And sometimes if you're lucky, a client will, you know, let you indulge a bit and, you know, some some great work can happen. But that's different, I think, from pure creative work. And this is where I think writing uh, prose uh, or poetry or, you know, someone who creates music, you know, and obviously your first novel was about a, mm. a musician. There's something rather extraordinary about those kind of pursuits where there is a kind of, you know, you're, you're chipping away at the marble to get that little perfect shape that's hidden within you know and i think sometimes we just have to allow that's why it can take a long time yeah yes and i've always loved the process of building something adding richness discovering mm. richness yeah. uh, that i find very rewarding 
Yeah, absolutely. So, folks, creativity is good for you. Uh, I wanted, uh, you know, we're heading towards the end now, but there's something else that you've uh, you've been doing more recently, which is you've actually started kind of mentoring other writers and taking them on this journey. Uh, and I think you particularly mentioned that someone who's uh, writing a memoir, for example, it's, you know, the writing fiction or nonfiction is, you know, a particular kind of gig and there's own sort of special aspects to them. But someone who's writing a memoir, perhaps for the first time, um, and wants it to not just be, well, I did this and then I did that and then I did this and then I did that, which for any potential reader is like yawn <laughs> right and you are you're finding you're t having to take people on their own journey to open themselves up you know and in psychological terms a lot of people can find this terrifying the decision to start writing a book is a big decision mm. in the first place opening yourself up to any extent putting yourself on paper and whoa people are going to read this but then thinking in terms of so what if it's a memoir what is it that people want to hear? They don't want to hear a shopping list. They actually want to kind of get to know something about you and your life journey and the difficult stuff as well, because that's that's what kind of makes people warm to you, isn't it? When you when you confess the difficult stuff you've faced and overcome, rather than just, oh, everything was just rosy and sunny and I had loads of money and it was great, you know. Mm. Who cares about that? So do, do you want to talk a little bit about how you encourage someone to open up in that kind of way, Ros? Um, first of all, I find out if they actually want to, because they might not. Mm. And um, mm. and that's fair enough. Um, but if they if they do want to, then the door is already opened. Mm. But just by asking that. Um, mm. And and then I can gently tease out of them, I think this this has got a much deeper truth in it. Could you go into mm. it more? Um, they they might find it difficult um, mm. because sometimes they haven't come to terms with things. They haven't got the healing that they need. Um, yeah. They they might have to leave it for a bit before they can see it before they can see it with enough clarity or be willing to delve into it mm. enough. But um, mm. the kinds of memoirs, and certainly the kind of memoir I was, I was discussing in my notes to you, um, mm. go very deep, and the the reader wants wants that deep journey um, and mm. something to um, to think of if you are writing a book like that is that um, the reader actually wants that contact. They mm. they they're not going to judge you. They then they're mm. not going to laugh at you. Um, they're going to mm. admire you probably for mm. for the honesty with which you manage to talk about whatever mm. it is. Um, so you are in a very safe space with the page. Yeah. And if yeah. you've got an editor who is saying, okay, I think that works, I think that doesn't work, or an editor that yeah. I might say, I think you need to adjust the nuance of that, um, and then it will come across as as more honest. Um, the biggest mm. problem is that um, writers push the reader away and in the kind of yeah. book where the reader doesn't want to be pushed away they actually want to be as close as possible to your thoughts and feelings yeah. um, then you sometimes have to go deeper it's, it's a balancing act um, finding out what, what, sure. what the writer is prepared 
to to talk about and but they find it very rewarding what you're talking about um i would uh i would classify as you know often a person hasn't necessarily done the processing of particular events of their life that they need to but actually in the process of writing that's a form of processing in itself isn't it like journal i keep regular journals these days and most of it you know if i read it back it's like oh my god what was i thinking about but i was just thinking about what i was experiencing at the time and getting it down onto the page you know that's almost like a free writing as mm. as uh, orna ross might describe it which can be extremely therapeutic and i think this is the thing is that um writing has been recognized for a long time that you know writing is a very powerful form of therapy of organizing your thoughts about particular emotions and events in your life and and that kind of thing isn't it well writing as therapy is different there are people who um who write memoirs as therapy but they haven't written them in a way that allows a reader properly in yes Uh, writing as therapy is you you and the page and you aren't necessarily inviting somebody in and and there's, mm. there's there's perfectly valid nothing wrong with that but if you are writing for a reader then you do have to do a certain amount of, of other work as well mm. um mm. and uh just writing therapy won't necessarily make a publishable book do, do you want to say a bit more about that because i i kind of uh deliberately was playing devil's advocate there because there's no way i'd publish my journals for example mm. no way uh because it is, it's just a, it's it's disorganised, it's a jumble, and it's just literally kind of blur on the, you know, I've 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 been particularly pissed off about something. I sat down, blur, just got it out, you know, as a form of uh, psychological processing. Uh, which, uh, listeners, if you haven't tried journaling, it is really powerful stuff, or can be, if you allow yourself to just blur, get it out. Yes, there is that distinction, isn't there? That that's not a saleable memoir. Mm. Yes, exactly. That's, you know. So where is, because some people say, oh, I don't understand. And uh, So where is that line, Roz? Well, if you're writing for a reader, you have to usually show um, quite a bit of insight. And mm-hmm. you usually have to come through the other end. Even though you might write yep. as though you're experiencing it, you, you have a sort of, you have insight and self-awareness. If if you're yeah. writing as therapy, you you are just there in the moment. You're doing what you need to do. Um, and the other crucial difference is structure. A memoir needs structure, so there has to be a beginning, yeah. middle, and end. It's not your whole life. It's usually the story of one particular um, aspect of your life, one particular issue. Yeah. So those are the main differences. Yeah. yeah, nicely, neatly put. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Ross, thank you so much. Uh, I'm conscious that we could just carry on guessing for ages, but because the, I, obviously both of us are fascinated by the process of creativity, the process mm. of writing, and uh, and what that means both, you know, to us personally and how how beneficial it can be. Because uh, writing is a wonderful thing. Because at the end of it, you've got a book or you've got a magazine article or, or a short story or whatever it happens to be, which then, uh, you know, one of the wonderful things I've found is where I've you create something, it's your baby, you send it out into the world, and it's like, oh God, I hope people like it, you know. And it's and oh, you yes. kind of describe with ever with ever <laughs> rest. It's like, oh God, 
God, you know. And that takes his own form of resilience and self-belief, doesn't it? About, you know, stay calm, stay calm, mm. don't panic, don't panic. You know, there's, there's, uh, you learn a lot and you learn to get quite thick skin. I remember when I got my first one-star review and it was like, was damaged on arrival, you know. It was just like nothing to do with the book itself. <laughs> mm. But, you know, you get these stupid... Anyway, we've all been there. Um, but the thing is that uh, it's a wonderful thing when you then start getting feedback, isn't it, Roz? That something that you've created yes. out of your own head means something to someone else. You yes. know, might be they've on the gone other side on the of the same, world. Yeah, they've gone through the same experience. That, um, yeah. yeah. Mm. And I think, I can't remember who it was, someone, uh, someone wise said, the other great thing about uh, books is they're time machines. That, you know, I, because I know now that, you know, my first book was published back in 2013. And I'm still getting people who've just bought it, getting in touch, saying, oh, I just got your book and I think it's lovely and wonderful. It's like, that's extraordinary. That's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, you know, all the quoting things at me that, oh, when you when in the book you said that, and it's like, did I, did I say that? <laughs> it's mm. like a long time ago now. But it is an extraordinary and wonderful thing, isn't it? Uh, and the it thought is, that people yes. will be will be reading your books after we're long gone, Roz. Let's hope so. Be... Yes. Start <laughs> now, everybody. Don't wait for that. Start. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic Ros thanks so much for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure having you here Likewise. and I'm quite certain I'll find an excuse to get you back on the show at some point in the future. <laughs> thank <All right>. you <laughs> thanks Ros take care and you don't forget to stay tuned for relaxation on the beach with Henry thanks for listening until next time be well This is Henry, and welcome to Relaxation on the Beach, number 11. I hope you're feeling well. And today, we're going to be thinking about or. I don't mean either or. And I don't mean the thing that you use to propel a boat forward. No, we're going to be talking about the other or A-W-E, or a sense of wonder at the things around us, our environment. But let's start, as usual, with you getting into a nice, relaxed position. Standing, sitting, kneeling lying down, whatever suits you best, and eyes open or eyes closed, whatever you prefer. I think eyes closed might be helpful today, so it's going to make it easier to use your imagination. But 
anyway, get yourself settled, <coughs> comfortable. Have a bit of a wriggle if you need to get rid of any kinks. And just notice anywhere in your body that's tense maybe and just focus on that area and stretch it out a bit get rid of those wrinkles and make a deliberate effort to smooth out your forehead relax especially around your shoulders and your neck and your jaw that's an area where we can spend a lot of the day subconsciously clenching our teeth so make an effort to just relax all those places and as usual we're going to start with a couple of lovely big breaths in some people I've discovered call this Zen breathing. You can call it what you like. But we're going to inhale for four, hold for four, and release for eight. Okay, are you ready? And in, two, three, four, hold, two, Three, four, out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now just allow your breath to return to a soft, gentle, steady pace. Now, what I'd like you to do is to think about something that inspires or has inspired all in you. Now, when I think about all, I'm lucky because I live on the south coast of England and some evenings, if I go down to the beach, the sunsets are just spectacular. That's a very common source of awe for many of us, isn't it? Just watching nature's fireworks display of sunrise or sunset. as that 
incredible bright orb of our nearest star rises into the heavens or descends towards the horizon cloaked in an extraordinary range of colours bright gold and silver and pink and purple blue sometimes even a hint of green absolutely phenomenal and it's completely free and I know when there's an amazing sunset I can picture one now in my mind's eye as it sinks down towards the horizon this bright silver disc with its light twinkling and sparkling off the waves forming that amazing it looks like a pathway doesn't it leading from us to the sun extraordinary sight and I find myself completely fixated on it. I admit that like many people, I often get my camera phone out and take pictures. They never quite capture the majesty of an amazing sunset. But they'll do as reminders. And sometimes I do that when I'm feeling a bit low. I just open my photos album on my computer and look at a whole host of photos of amazing sunsets taken in sequence, following the sun down towards the horizon until eventually it changes colour to bright orange or red and then just sinks below the horizon and a few moments later usually there's this incredible afterglow that kind of lights up the sky and if you look around you as the sun's going down you see the incredible range of colors stretching across the horizon from really bright powerful reds and oranges and yellows through to subtle pastel pinks and blues and purple and lilac and just stand or sit there on the beach Taking it all in. And that's one piece of awe that's completely free. Summer or winter, wherever you are in the world, sunrises and sunsets are worth getting up early for or staying up late for that's my favorite 
but you may have other sorts of awe, perhaps. If you're a person who has religious beliefs, for you, your sense of awe might come with your communication with your God. Or being in a place of worship, like a magnificent cathedral. That can be awe-inspiring, even for me, and I'm not a believer. But when I walk into something like Canterbury Cathedral, Westminster Cathedral, and look up, those are buildings designed to inspire awe with their huge vaulted ceilings stretching up to the sky, magnificent stained-glass windows, particularly if sun's in the right position, the light flooding through those windows, spreading colour all over the floor, sunbeams catching little motes of dust, there's a choir singing with their voices rich and echoing around the building. That can certainly be a source of awe. Here's another one. After the sunset, on a clear night, you look up into the night sky particularly if you're somewhere that's a long way from street lights and all those myriads of tiny sparkling twinkling stars shining at us across vast distances of space as we on the outer spiral arm of the Milky Way galaxy spin our way through the universe and we see stars and the planets and the moon and the constellations and we get a sense of vastness of being part of something much, much bigger than ourselves. And I find that reassuring. Perhaps you do too. But we have this connection to all this matter spread across our galaxy and thousands upon thousands of other galaxies creating this incredible universe with its extraordinary possibilities. So much of it's still unknown and perhaps even unknowable. And another example that might inspire awe, I remember the first time I visited the Alps in Europe. Great big mountains rising out of the ground see them for many, many miles before we got anywhere near them, with their snow-tipped peaks, massive broad shoulders burying deep into the earth, 
And sometimes if you want to ground yourself, perhaps even imagine yourself to be one of those magnificent mountains, solid, rooted, eternal, unshakable, incredible journeys, winding hairpin bends going up the side of these mountains. I love them actually particularly in spring and summertime with the meadows with endless swathes of beautiful wildflowers and those gorgeous cows with the bells around their necks and rushing streams alongside the road. Just exquisite and clean air and sun on your face. Those are just some examples of awe that you can draw on when you're feeling perhaps lonely or down. That there are so many beautiful and amazing things in the world and that you're part of them. You are part of this beautiful, incredible planet. You're linked to all these things. You're able to look out into the universe and feel the power of this beauty filling you up. So, once we've finished, perhaps you'd like to have a think about the things that inspire awe in you. Perhaps places you've visited, or places you'd like to go. Or descriptions you've read in books, or something you've seen in film. Have a think about all those things that inspire you and fill you with awe. And keep them so that when you need to, you can remind yourself that there is huge amounts of beauty and wonder that you can access. So now we're going to draw to a close. And again, we're going to take couple of lovely big breaths. So breathing in, two, three, four, and hold, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and in, two, three, four, hold, Two, three, four, out. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And allow yourself a bit of a stretch. Perhaps wiggle your fingers and toes. And now slowly open your eyes and get ready to go back to your day. Thank you for spending this time with me.
And until next time, be well. This podcast was produced by Henry Hyde. Copyright Henry Hyde, 2021. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing via your normal podcast player such as Apple, Google, Spotify or Amazon. You can also support the show directly via our coffee page at ko-fi.com slash inside your head, all one word. That's coffee.com slash inside your head, where you can make donations in multiples of just £3, the equivalent of a cup of coffee. All donations are gratefully received and go directly to the production costs of the show. Thank you.